Welcome to the Heart of Life podcast, sponsored by Riverbend Counseling in Colorado Springs. I am Brooke Small. And I am Jesse Steffes. In this podcast, we dive into the heart of life's questions. This is not a substitute for mental health therapy. However, our goal is to make healing accessible for as many as possible. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about what we do when somebody's emotional experience seems to take up all of the oxygen in a relationship. We've heard from several people who ask the question, what do I do when somebody's daily life makes them so upset that I can't even show up without triggering that anxiety or that depression or the anger or the self-loathing, sadness, all of, you know, all of the above? We have a writer today who has said, Dear Heart of Life, my friend is a good person, she's funny and kind, but I feel myself becoming more and more resentful every day. She's lived with me for the last two years because she struggles to keep a job or apartment. We have argued about this and I have tried to set boundaries, but every time I do, she cries and I don't have the heart to really do anything about it. I know she has had a hard life and she has had a lot of trauma. Does that mean that I can't or shouldn't expect much from her? I want to have empathy, and at the same time, I'm feeling like I'm carrying the weight of both of our lives. Right now, our relationship feels fragile, and I don't know that I'm, I uh, don't know, but I know that I'm not the only one that feels frustrated with her right now. Mm. How do I even talk to her about this? That, that sense of fragility in this letter writer is really prominent. The relationship is feeling fragile. Everything is feeling like eggshells. And when we're, we find ourselves in a relational space like that, it's really hard for us to do those skills that you and I teach as therapists, have challenging conversations and have, you know, brave conversations, articulate your needs. Those can all feel almost locked up when we're afraid that asking for our needs or asserting uh, about our experience may break someone else. Mm -hmm. That's what I hear in this letter writer. Yeah, that fear that this would be one more trauma or that it would trigger those trauma reactions. And I hear that a lot from my clients, especially as we have those conversations about, all right, how do we start talking about our needs or how do we start showing up in our relationships? One of the things that they often come back with when we talk about what are the barriers to being able to do this is that, well, if I say these things, then I might really make her angry or him sad and how do I, I I don't think I could live with the way that they would feel about that mm. so it, it really is a it's a true barrier yeah. right because we want to be kind and we want we don't want to hurt people's feelings we don't want to move through the world like bulldozers either mm -hmm. but also the longer we go in our relationships without showing up the more resentful we're going to be and the less they are relationships right? They're just, that's just someone we know now and that we're being very careful around, but there's not a relationship there. Yeah. The, the resilience and the flexibility required in healthy relationships ceases to exist mm -hmm. when it is, is bound the way that we're talking about. Right. Right. So 
I think a couple things that we need to talk about here is one, how do we learn to be compassionate for mm. someone's emotional experience, but not responsible for that? How do we learn to have conversations where we begin to put trust and faith in them to be able to regulate their own experience and not rely on us to do that for them? Mm -hmm. And then how do we lean into the discomfort of having those hard conversations? One of the reasons why when this person's friend starts crying and the conversation ends is because that's also really uncomfortable for the letter writer. So right. we have to be able to lean into some discomfort too. And as much as I, I agree completely, and as much as we um, <clears throat> may feel genuine in our emotional response when we're hurt, like the friend referenced here, we can also as humans develop mechanisms that keep people at bay. And we can develop mechanisms that keep challenge and confrontation and insight and awareness at bay whether that's intentional or not. And sometimes tears even can act as that. If I cry, conversations stop. Mm -hmm. And that may not be, that might not even be something super conscious to us um, in our mind, but we can observe that pattern on an unconscious level of when I become overly emotional and appear dysregulated, the challenge of the conversation of when I'm going to move out stops and mm -hmm. I don't have to have it anymore, mm -hmm. which completely you know, like we've talked about, stops progress. Right. Well, and our brains are predictive, right? So just like you said, it's not, it's most of the time, it's not a conscious decision to start crying or to start talking. You know, a lot of times those conversations stop because the person we're having them with starts with all the negative self-talk. I'm a terrible person. I'm awful. You don't, you deserve better than me. All of those things which I, again, I don't think that it's done consciously. Our brains are predictive. Our brains learn that when I do these things or say these things, this, this awful discomfort goes mm -hmm. away. But what, what ends up happening is that the, the other person in the conversation feels like they're left to hold the responsibility of everyone's emotions in that space. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you talked about the oxygen being taken out of a room by someone's emotional experience, that really can feel suffocating for the person who's so worried that they're going to harm someone else with a conversation. Mm -hmm. And a word that you and I have talked about and kind of come to really dislike is the word triggered and how that has been co-opted and kind of misused in our world of not wanting to trigger one another, not wanting to trigger someone's you know, trauma response or anxiety response. Right, or I feel so triggered by this, that, or the other. Uh, and so I think it's really important for us to talk about what, what does trigger mean and what's the difference between trigger and being uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And for me, when we're talking about the idea of actually being triggered, that's a very clinical experience. That's a psychological experience that someone can have where they're moving into a space that is not present-minded or present-focused or in the immediate. It's far beyond uncomfortable. It's to the point where we maybe are even leaving our current experience. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of, you know, I, I see it on Instagram all the time, hashtag triggered, when something is compelling or confrontational or convicting to our experience, having something pointed out to us is not triggering. Mm -hmm. It could be challenging or like you said, uncomfortable. Um, but I think exchanging those words for each other is not 
is not a really great use of that word. No, and I think in a lot of ways the word triggered has become one of those things that if I say this, then the conversation ends. Or if I say this, then you don't get to ask me to do this thing or I don't have to meet that need. And again, just like you said, when we talk about triggered, especially within the trauma narrative, triggered means that we are dissociative. Mm -hmm. It means that we are in a space of having flashbacks that are sending our body into a space of where we used to be rather than where we are now. So Mm -hmm. we're in a nervous system response that is related to a trigger from before, whereas the way it gets used most of the time is... um, again, I'm feeling dysregulated or that makes me really uncomfortable or makes me sad or angry or any of those spectrum of emotions that we feel, but that are actually necessary for change and growth and communication and intimacy. Yeah. And enduring in those times is, is really important for the relationship to move forward. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking too, if, if you are <clears throat> maybe someone who's had experiences that you feel are triggering for you And you're not sure now, based on what we've described, if you're feeling triggered or uncomfortable, therapy is a good and helpful space to navigate what might actually be happening in your body and in your narrative so that you can determine, are you having healthy interactions with people or are you really needing some treatment around that? Yeah, that's an excellent point. The other point that I, that I want to make with this too, is that even in trauma therapy, we don't teach people to avoid their triggers, Yes. right? The way that it's getting used right now in social media, on TikTok, on Instagram is all about that triggers me. And so you're not allowed to go into that space and talk about that. If it really truly is a trauma trigger, then again, like Jesse said, we really encourage you to go to therapy so that you can work on that. But in therapy, we're not going to teach you how to avoid those things either. We're going to teach you how to be in them and with them and take control of them. And so using triggers as a reason to not have a conversation or feeling uncomfortable as a reason to not have a conversation or hold someone accountable is not helpful for them. And it's not something that clinically we would even recommend right. because we it's, it, it <clears throat> impedes our growth and healing rather than helping us. Yeah. I I love the way you said that. And, you know, when I, when I think about also individuals who've experienced trauma for whom this idea of wanting to avoid triggers is present, if the people who love them in their lives don't allow them exposure to difficulty and discomfort, there is an implication there that you don't believe they can heal. Mm -hmm. There's an implication there that you don't believe they can grow and move through and recover and, you know, whatever word fits best for them. But when we, when we experience individuals with struggle, whether that's trauma or anxiety, anything, and we don't touch them in that experience because we're afraid that they can't handle it, we are stealing from them an opportunity to grow and move and have difficult experiences with safe people, mm-hmm. which is exactly how we move through healing. Right. To build resilience and to build self-confidence, right? We become confident in something when we actually move into a space where we're not confident. It doesn't just come to us. It's Mm -hmm. something that we develop over time, stretching ourselves and moving. So going back to this writer, having those hard conversations, this is the space where we say, yes, It's important to have those conversations. It's important to ask your friend to be accountable. 
or a partner who's anxious to be accountable for how their experience is impacting you. And you can do that with compassion. So when we yeah. say giving people the opportunity to touch those things that are uncomfortable, we're not saying, you know, just throw them into that. Right. But there is a way to approach that with compassion and understanding uh, and grace while at the same time allowing your experience to show up in the same way. Yeah. You know, I see this happen a lot when <clears throat> when I'm working with individuals whose partner maybe struggles and they want to have conversations. You know, our letter writer here is talking about a friend, but even more intimate relationships where, you know, my partner struggles with anxiety and I feel like I want to talk about these topics, but every time I do, his anxiety really um, elevates. And I feel like I'm making him anxious by bringing this up. And one of the things that I always try to <clears throat> try to shift in that language is we can't make anybody anything. Mm-hmm. We can't make them feel any, our, we wouldn't have a job if people <laughs> could make anybody <laughs> feel anything. Um, but the idea is, yes, perhaps this conversation is, is increasing the anxiety because this is hard but it doesn't mean it's not worth having. And so how can we say, I trust you in this conversation to stay with me and to let me know when we need to take breaks, but we really need to talk about this because it's important to me and I know I'm important to you. And in doing that, in having those conversations, right? And saying, hey, I can tell this is upsetting you. I can tell that you feel like crying. Mm -hmm. I want to be here with you. And at the same time, this really matters. So let's sit here. Let's move through this. I'll give you some time to to do what you need to do to collect yourself and to regulate. But we're going to stay here and have this conversation. So that same idea, right? Like I I can tell this makes you anxious. I can tell this makes you sad. But let's stay in this space to do together. When we're doing that, one one thing that we know as trauma therapists is that we heal relationally right Mm -hmm. trauma heals through relationships when we are avoiding someone's anxiety or sadness when we're avoiding all of those things we're actually not creating the relationship for healing Mm. but when we come in relationally we say hey i see this and you and i have talked about let's make anxiety something that's outside of both of us or sadness that's something outside of both of us. Hey, I see the sadness in the room. Mm-hmm. I have compassion for that. I'm not responsible for that. I'm not making anyone feel that. But I can sit here and move through this conversation. And if you move through those conversations without stopping them, without mm-hmm. walking away, you begin to help the other person reroute and retrain their brain to, hey, you know what? That was a really hard conversation, but I sat through it. That's I right. did it. And maybe now I can do it at work or I can do it with other friends. And that takes such a level of trust, right? Because also we know in trauma treatment and in trauma therapy that the person who's moving through healing has to consent to things all along the way. And so having consent before that conversation of saying, we, we really need to talk about this and, and some logistics, like, is it a great idea to do that when you're both really hungry? No, <laughs> or when you've both been sleep deprived, you know, or right before bed when there's not a lot of time, like set up an opportunity in a space for it to be the most successful within your control that you can, mm-hmm. and then make sure that you're talking overtly about this may be a difficult conversation, but it's really important that we stick in just like what you just said. Yeah. I'm thinking too, when we 
the idea of being informed by something versus overtaken by it. And if we can be what we use in our field is we call it trauma-informed, where we move through the world with our clients with the assumption that everybody may have had experiences that we're not aware of. So how can we not be harmful? But that doesn't mean that we don't walk boldly or that we don't walk with challenge and insight. And so I'm thinking about for this letter writer, how can you be informed of your friend's struggles? How can you be informed of their um, their level of functioning right now? Informed by that, see it in the room, like you just said, Brooke, I, I see it over there, but not let that overtake exactly what the relationship's supposed to look like or what some of these conversations are going to look like. Mm-hmm. Again, coming back to that idea that what you're seeing, the behaviors, the emotions, that's how they learned to be, mm-hmm. not who they are. Right. And if you can keep coming back to seeing who they are outside of those behaviors, there's a way to be able to connect and have that conversation. And sometimes there's not. Yeah. Right? Sometimes all of the best advice or the information that we have doesn't even help in the therapy room because mm-hmm. that person isn't prepared to let down those barriers and to be vulnerable enough to have those hard conversations. Right. And so I want to make space, too, for the fact that you may need to have the conversation with your friend or your partner, and they may not respond well. If that is the case, there has to be a condition to that boundary that you've set. Right. Something has to happen because the longer it goes the way it's going, the more resentment builds up, and it really will be so fragile that it breaks. Yeah. So boundaries, again are about improving, maintaining or improving the relationship. So knowing that you're setting these hard lines, hey, you have to be responsible for this thing, and if you're not, these are the things that will happen. Right. Um, that's necessary for a relationship. I think it's also necessary for our own sense of self, mm-hmm. because if we can't believe ourselves when we set boundaries, can we believe ourselves in anything? Right. Um, you know, I, I'm not a parent, but what I understand is that if you tell them there'll be a consequence and then there's not, they don't believe you anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might've experienced that as a child, right? but <clears throat> the idea of, can I follow through? And I think this, this discussion too, about, about boundaries and follow through also brings up the idea going back to that, that crying is potentially a mechanism when someone's internal struggle begins to emerge based on your confrontation or your need assertion, it doesn't mean that what you've asked is not appropriate and it doesn't mean what you've asked is hurtful or harmful um, or that it's not something that you deserve to be asking for. Being able to detach someone's response to a challenging conversation from the need to have it is a really important if we're going to enforce those boundaries. And that can sometimes look like watching our partner or someone or friend getting anxious and saying, never mind, never mind, mm-hmm. and kind of scooting out of the, the conversation for maybe our own comfort or everybody's harmony. Mm-hmm. But like we've talked about before, it doesn't promote intimacy to do that. Right. And love can be unconditional, but relationships are conditional. Yes. Right. And those conditions are the boundaries that we set to keep them safe and to keep them healthy and to create intimacy within those. If relationships are unconditional, they will fall apart 
right? They, there is nothing to hold them in yeah. without boundaries, right? There's this really great communication model that I teach to almost all of my clients as we're learning to set boundaries. And it's pretty simple. And I'll give the example based on something that I've had to use it for. Here's where it gets real. <laughs> when I was in grad school, my, uh, my classes were late at night sometimes. Mm. And I would be working all day and then I'd come home late after these classes to a dirty kitchen Hmm. and then the resentment that I would feel was was huge right to the point of there were times where I would go into people's rooms like at 10 o'clock at night (laughs) like banging pans together get in the kitchen you would have been a really good boot camp (laughs) instructor for the military only when it comes to dishes so so I used this model because it really helped me to be able to articulate what was happening for me. So when we're talking about a problem, we always want to externalize it, right? It's not like, hey, Jesse, you are, or every time you do this, because the minute I say that to you, what happens? My brain is sending off alarms of defense. Right. You get so defensive yeah. and you're not listening to me. And then I get defensive and I'm not listening to you. So we always want to externalize whatever the problem is. So mine was when I come home and the kitchen is dirty. Mm -hmm. It's not anybody. It's just a dirty kitchen. Mm -hmm. So when I come home or when X happens, Mm -hmm. right, I feel. So for me, I was feeling frustrated, angry, um, unseen, right? So I feel frustrated, angry, and unseen because, right? Why? Well, because I've been gone all day and I feel like when I come home, it's gonna, it's my responsibility to do this too. And I'm tired, mm-hmm. right? So I, when X happens, I feel because the next part of it is what I need from people, mm-hmm. right? What I need from you or from you. So for me, it was, I need you to put dishes in the dishwasher. That's, that's, that's it. it. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't seem that hard, but yes, I need dishes to be in the dishwasher. Um, This gets, uh, I'm giving you a very simple version of it, right? This gets a lot more complicated when we're setting harder boundaries, but I need dishes to be in the dishwasher. This is the part of, this next part is the part we usually leave out. Mm -hmm. But what I'm going to say is, if you can do this, then I will, right? And this isn't a like, then I'll do your laundry or anything like that. It's then I'll be able to come home yes. and spend time with you and sit down on the couch and ask you about your day yeah. because I don't have that same resentment or frustration. I'll be more relaxed. I'll be able to just enjoy the time with you. Yeah. Right? So <clears throat> if you can do this, then I will. Yeah. So the hardest part is the boundary part, right? We've already said what we need, and this is the part in the conversation where now I have to set a boundary and a consequence. When we're talking about kids, it's a lot easier because when we talk about consequence with kids, we're like, well, I'll take your Xbox or you can't use your phone or you're not, right? Like there's this very tangible thing. But when we're having a conversation with people we're in relationship with, adults we're in relationship with, the consequences are much more just natural consequences of this. Yeah. Right? If I come home, the dishes aren't done, you haven't done the things I've asked, the consequence of that is that I'm going to feel frustrated and angry. So I'm just going to go right into my room and get ready for bed. 
-hmm. I can't do these other things because that's not how I want to be in this space. Yeah. Right. It can also be, I'll be really tired and I won't be able to sit down and watch a movie with you like you like to do with me, Mm. whatever those are. But when we are setting boundaries with people that take up a lot of oxygen and a lot of space, it can be really helpful to use that model to, to one, articulate how we feel, two, understand why we want what we want, yeah, and then be able to think about what, how do I hold this boundary, what's the consequence of not having this boundary, and then what do we do from there? I love that expansion of that idea because I think in our in our kind of most human effort that looks like if you would just do this then I wouldn't act like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like as as you kind of expanded and unfurled that it really is a more thorough way to talk about if you do this I actually am open emotionally for more connection and space. Mm-hmm but without having to say you, right? And I'm thinking about the idea of in relationships, maybe something we think about is what needs to happen for more emotional space for connection to exist here? What behavioral things need to shift for us so that we can actually connect in the way that it sounds like we're both hoping to in this friendship or partnership or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that requires that we both show up, right? right? Going again to that the boundaries are there to keep the relationship safe and healthy and without them it becomes fragile and really tenuous I don't know if this thing's going to survive so so it can be really scary to start talking about boundaries and putting those in there it can be really scary to have hard conversations and be met with someone's strong emotional response on the other side of that but knowing your why yeah like why am I doing this I'm doing this because I care about this relationship why am I pushing through and with this person's tears or frustration or anger because I really care about them and I know that their way of moving through the world right now is impacting them negatively and I need to have this conversation I love that so if we if we put this into takeaways what are our what are our takeaways for maybe this letter writer or for anyone who is thinking about the struggle of being in relationship with with not a ton of oxygen left in the (laughs) elevator. (laughs) Well, the first one I would say is learn how to be compassionate for, Mm -hmm. but not responsible for somebody else's experience. So we can care for someone, but not take care of someone. And part of that is just realizing like, hey, is this mine or is it not? And being able to put it down if it's not. Yeah. And I think the one that I would would offer is the idea of remembering or kind of placing as a compass that the the point of this all is to increase connection not to decrease it Mm -hmm. and so when like you said when we put boundaries in place it's so that we can have better relationships and more closeness not to shut people out yeah and the last one I would say is remembering that love can be unconditional but relationships are conditional and as you're trying to decide what those conditions and boundaries are, use that, that model yeah. to help you really decide how you feel and what you need from the people around you. That's great advice. Okay. We love spending time with you. See you next time. If you are interested in submitting a question or letter to the Heart of Life podcast, you can do so at our website, riverbendcolorado.com, and click on the podcast tab. We would love for you to give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. 
By doing so, you help us make the Heart of Life podcast easier to find and more accessible for everyone. We will see you next week as we walk each other home.